I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to James, which will be the text for this morning's sermon. James chapter 4. I will read verses 1 through 10. What causes wars and what causes fightings among you? Is it not your passions that are at war in your members? You desire and do not have, so you kill. And you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Unfaithful creatures, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is in vain that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit which he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you men of double mind. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to dejection. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. In the past year... We have seen Satan make a very decisive move in America. A move from being the secret spirit of civilized secularism, where life is organized and rational and Satan is not feared and God is not needed, and very likely neither of them exists. A move from being the secret power to an overt display of uncivilized, barbaric, crude, primitive wickedness. We've seen a man kill near still water so that the killers could drink his blood to Satan. We've seen a student from down the street brutalized most of the night by a man intent on eating the flesh of her legs and killing her. We know of teenage Satan worship in the caves around the city. We have seen prime time documentaries on Satanism and heard live testimonies of women who say that they are breeders who get pregnant just so that they can provide babies for human sacrifice. We have seen tens of millions of so-called post-Christian secular Americans engage in new age occultism. And here in our own congregation, we have dealt with fairly blatant sexual harassments of different kinds. 
What I want to do this morning is serve notice to Satan that we will not be intimidated. And that we fly a banner over our lives and over our church which reads, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And we reaffirm our confidence in the command and the promise, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We renew ourselves and we dedicate ourselves afresh this morning to go in obedience to the Lord and in hope and the promise that he will never leave us or forsake us. And I want to dedicate Prayer Week 1989 to the strengthening of our hands in the war effort to which we're called. The point of the message this morning is this. Focused wartime prayer is an essential part of our attack on the strongholds of Satan. Focused Wartime prayer is an essential part of our assault on the strongholds of Satan. Now, I've said it before, and I love to say it again and again. The reason that God has given prayer to the church is not as a domestic intercom to ring up the butler To bring another cushion to the den. The reason God has given prayer to the church is as a wartime walkie-talkie to make war on Satan and untruth and evil and wickedness and joylessness and hopelessness in the world. That's why we have prayer. That's why we ought to use it. And we need to learn to use it in a focused concerted way against the designs of the evil one. In other words, prayer is not mainly a peacetime activity. It's surrounded by a sense of urgency in the New Testament. It's a matter of alertness and warning. It's a wartime instrument, not a peacetime instrument. And we need to know the designs of Satan and how to pray in focused, pointed Weapon-like ways against his designs. We need to get beyond the conversational, peacetime way of just talking generally with God and learn what it means to pray in a focused, wartime way against the designs of the devil. And therefore, my purpose this morning is threefold. One, to lay out for you ten designs of the devil from the Bible. Number two, to put over against that the magisterial victory of Jesus Christ. And three, to relate prayer to that victory and those designs. First, the designs of Satan. And heads of houses... Listen, fathers I have in mind in families where there's a father, husbands where there's a husband, you should take very special attention to what I'm saying. 
I believe fathers will bear special accountability to the Lord for protecting their wife and children from the evil one. The reason I believe that is not only because of the teaching of the headship of the husband in the New Testament, but because when mankind fell in the garden, the very first person to whom the Lord came was, Adam, where are you and where were you? That's the first question God ever posed to fallen humanity. And it's the question that we ought to ask to all the families in America today. I just read in a book by Dobson, he said the number one need in America today is fathers who will take the lead in their family spiritual life. And so I plead with you men, listen to what I'm saying. Arm yourselves and do battle with Satan for the sake of your family. I shudder when I think of my sons and what they're up against. I do battle for my sons every morning, pleading that the satanic forces that come against them and sometimes cross their faces, you can see it, will be shattered by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you pray like that for your children and for your wife and yourself, your neighborhood? Design number one, Satan is a liar and lies every day. John 8, 44, when he lies, he speaks according to his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Number two, Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers. In other words, this is 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Not only does he speak what is false, he hides what is true. Three, Satan masquerades in costumes of light and righteousness. Second Corinthians eleven thirteen, Paul says there are among the believers false apostles. And then he accounts for that like this. No wonder, he says, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is not strange if his servants... Infiltrating the church also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. And Jesus himself says they will be like wolves in sheep's clothing. And Paul says in Acts 20, they will rise up from among yourselves, you elders, and do havoc to the flock. Fourth, Satan does signs and wonders. Second Thessalonians 2.9, Paul says that the last days will come. I believe we are in them. The coming of the lawless one by the activity of Satan will be with all power and with signs and wonders of the lie. And in Matthew 24.24, Jesus himself says, False Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. And I love that little phrase, if possible. It isn't. That's the point. The elect will never be deceived by the signs and wonders, but oh, they'll be a parting of the ways of many in the church. This is how we will know in the last days who are the elect in the church and who are not. Those who are not will be wowed by the signs and wonders of the false prophets of our day and be drawn away to what Paul calls Doctrines of demons. 
And they'll be based very largely in Scripture. Mark it. Fifth, Satan tempts people to sin. He did it unsuccessfully to Jesus in the wilderness, and he did it so successfully to Judas in the last week of our Lord's life. He tempts to disobedience and sin. Sixth, Satan plucks the word of God out of people's hearts and chokes faith. Remember the parable of the four soils? The word is sown, some of it falls on the path, and the birds come and pluck it up before it can do anything. And Jesus explains in verse 15 of Mark 4, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word which was sown in them. This is a terrifying thing for a preacher to hear. That I know that there's some out there, and I throw the seed out this morning, and before I can get the words out of my mouth almost, Satan comes right into your mind. It's gone, and you're thinking about the ball game, or dinner, or the hair in front of you, or perfume that you can smell, or an ache in your back. It's gone. And Satan has succeeded and, ch- and faith is just choked because faith comes by the word. He hates faith and therefore he takes the word and therefore that parable ends like this. Take heed how you hear. Seven, Satan causes some sickness and disease. Remember the woman in Ah, the Bible where Jesus comes to her and she's bent over like this and she can't stand up. She hasn't stood up for 18 years. And Jesus heals her. And she stands up. And they get mad at Him for doing it on Sunday. And Jesus answers like this. Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years be loosed on the Sabbath day. Satan did it. Eight. Satan is a murderer. Jesus said, John 8, 44, you are of your father the devil. He's talking to those who are about to kill him. You are of your father the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and has nothing to do with the truth. And then John says in his epistle, Do not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. To put it into words, Satan is bloodthirsty, and he doesn't care about the blood of animals. He is a bloodthirsty fiend. He's a lion, prowling, and his teeth are showing more and more Overtly in America today, we move from vampire murders and blood drinking to the sacrifices of living infants in the caves of this city, I believe, to 4,000 shredded infants every day in the abortion mills of this country. 200 at least. I'm giving. I had a person come up after the service and said, it's not 200 A week, it's 250 a day. But I'll just stick with my conservative estimate. 200 living children a week in this city 
have their arms and legs pulled off and their bodies and torsos ground up in garbage disposals. And you look into the darkened eyes of the men and women who run the abortion mills of this city like I did on December 19th and see if you don't see the darkness of the devil. Nine, Satan fights against the plans of missionaries. First Thessalonians 2.17, Paul says, We endeavored the more eagerly and with Great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. He hates evangelism. He hates missions. He hates people who love souls. He hates discipleship. You just set yourself to save somebody's soul this year by praying for them and witnessing to them, and you will experience an onslaught of satanic opposition. Just look what's happened to our missionaries on the field this year. And you can believe what Paul means when he says, He hindered us. He's hindering on every front. And that's why I say, We ought to sing Onward Christian Soldiers at the end of this service. We will sing Onward Christian Soldiers at the end of this service because we're not going to tolerate this kind of hindrance at Bethlehem. We're not going to lie down and say, oh, this dangerous stuff here, this vampire murder, this child sacrifice, and this occult business, this is dangerous. Let's not talk about that. You start talking about God, I mean, Satan starts messing around in the church. Well, of course he does because he doesn't like to mess with corpses. Just live Christians who are soldiers. Number 10, Satan accuses Christians before God in heaven every day. Revelation 12.10 looks into the future at a great time of victory and describes it like this. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Now that scene has not yet happened. Satan approaches God day and night. And you know what he says about you? Same thing he says about Job. He says, uh, they don't really trust you. They're in it for social respectability. They're in it because their parents were in it. Come on. They're in it for the benefits, skin for skin. If they got sick and came to die, they'd curse you to your face. They just came to that late night service just to show off. They gave that amount of money just to pay you off. And on and on the lies and the accusations go to God. And sometimes, like with Job, God will let you prove him a liar by being tested. But someday that accuser is going to be cast out. Well, there they are. Ten of his designs. That's not all of them. But I hope that you are not ignorant of those. As we begin 1989, we as a church need to take heed and be sober and serve notice on the devil 
that our king has all authority in heaven and on earth. He's the one who has commissioned us. We don't come against the devil with a kind of cocky spirit thinking that we're stronger than the devil. We tremble at the God of this world. We come in the humble confidence that the one who loved us and gave himself for us said, all authority in heaven and earth is mine. Go like sheep in the midst of fanged wolves. That's the way we go. Now, the victory of Christ is magnificent. And and I don't know how many of you have come up against Satanism face to face in this past year like some of us have. But I'll tell you, the more real Satan becomes in your life, the more precious the victory of Jesus becomes in the Bible. The New Testament teaches that when Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead, he defeated Satan. He is defeated. So that if you are in Christ, the power of Satan in your life is broken and he cannot deceive you ultimately. He cannot destroy you. Romans 8 makes it abundantly clear. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Jesus who prays every day in heaven for us. Nothing, not principalities, not powers, not any hosts of heaven can separate us from the love of God. But outside Jesus Christ, it is a maelstrom of destruction. And I hope that you come in this morning. If you're on the outside, the victory is guaranteed. First John 3, 8, the Son of God came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. Hebrews 2, 14, the Son of God took human flesh upon him that through death he might destroy him who has the power of death, namely the devil. Colossians 2, 15, God put to an open display and shame the principalities and powers triumphing over them on the cross. He who is in you now is stronger and greater than he who is in the world. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. He has won the victory. All we need to do now is live in that victory and show Satan his defeat. He needs to be reminded day in and day out, he's a goner. You frighten Satan by reminding him of the promises of his defeat every day. You tell his lackey demons, do you know? that you are going to burn in the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. Do you know that? It says so in Revelation 20, verse 11. Be gone. The victory has been won for me. Do you deal with the opposition of your life in this concerted, focused, forthright, dynamic, spirit-filled way? Or are you a stranger to spiritual warfare this morning? And so my last point is to draw you in to the point of prayer. Prayer, I said at the beginning, is in its focused and concerted wartime form an essential element 
in the assault on Satan. Now, let me try to just close briefly with a few texts to show you where I'm getting that and then point us into the rest of the week. In Luke 22:31, Jesus said something amazing. He said to Peter, Peter, Satan demanded to have you. I think he's giving an illustration there of Satan's going to God and saying something to God. Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat through this sift. Try to sift your faith out. And then he said, but Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. Now, what did he do for us there? He gave us an example of what I'm talking about when I say focused, wartime prayer. He sees a specific attack of Satan upon one of his disciples. And he says to that disciple, I've cut him off, Peter. I've interposed prayer. I have frustrated his design with prayer. Now, Satan was able to do some rotten stuff with Peter, but he lost the battle. He could not bring him to ruin. And so Jesus said, when you turn, Peter, strengthen your brothers. That's the way to pray against Satan. You see a specific design that he has. We've talked to ten of them. And you attack head on with prayer towards the God who is all victorious over this evil one. Another text would be uh, the Lord's Prayer, which says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Which means, oh God, deliver me in this moment from the successful designs of the temptation of the evil one. Pray concertedly, focusedly against the tempting designs. Of Satan. Lastly, Ephesians 6.18 says, Take the sword of the Spirit, praying at all times in the Spirit. Now, the point of that, praying at all times in the Spirit, is this. All of the armor of God, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the, the belt of truth, the shoes of of the readiness of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit. All of the wielding of the spiritual armor must be done by prayer. You try to do any of that in your own strength without prayer, and the, the shield will flop on you. The sword will fall out of your hand. The shoes will give blisters to your feet. Praying at all times in the Spirit. So the very heartbeat of spiritual warfare is prayer. Now, there's so much more that needs to be said, but we don't have time. So here's what we've done. We have planned two major events this week to teach and to practice wartime prayer. We need this very much. None of us is very good at this. None of us has had much experience in America with dealing with the demonic, dealing with the satanic. And it is coming gangbusters upon us. The Bible says it will rise up and we're seeing it rise up. You don't need any crystal ball anymore to know that the horrendous wickedness of the evil one is upon us. We need some 
teaching and we need some training and some practice in how to do this. So, Wednesday night is called Battlefronts. There are no clubs Wednesday night. There's no choir practice Wednesday night. There'll be a nursery. We'll meet here in this room because I'm trusting God that he's going to put it in many of your hearts that at least this Wednesday out of the year, you want to pray and learn to pray in these matters. For example, what we'll do is divide Wednesday night up into about seven or eight sections. We'll have a different leader who's had some experience in these areas lead the section and lead the prayer. They'll go just like that. Bring the family, bring the kids. They need to sit in prayer meeting at least once out of the year and pray against the devil. They need to know about these things and pray with you. The littlest ones can go to the nursery. We'll talk about personal struggles with Satan. Attacks on church life, resistance of outreach, attempts to capture our youth, growing lawlessness, and so on, Wednesday night, and then pray about each of those. Friday night, we start at 10 o'clock with worship. Satan hates worship. The one demon exorcism that I've been a part of, and some of you sitting here, I see you, were a part of it with me eight years ago. The thing that brought that demon out of that woman was singing praise to the Lord. We're going to begin with worship on Friday night before we go to battle in prayer and the worship team will lead us. And then we're going to talk about fasting. We'll talk about prayer partnerships. We'll talk about using the word in personal warfare. We'll talk about demon influences specifically. We'll talk about Satan strategies in the world and we'll talk about secularism one each hour and then pray about it each hour. It's really important. If you can come for all of it, great. If you can only come from a part, come. We mean business against the evil one this year at Bethlehem. We mean business by setting aside a week of prayer. Now, I close by just pointing your attention to this. I have a new idea. I don't know if it will work. I've prayed that it will work. I'd love to see it work over the coming years. We have a thousand members at Bethlehem. Forty people come to prayer meeting on Wednesday night. Should we feel guilty about that? Probably. But we probably shouldn't feel guilty that all a thousand aren't here. There are so many different ways of praying. So many different callings to prayer. Many of you are warriors in prayer who, who don't or can't come on Wednesday night. Here's my new idea. Let's have a recruitment every three months for a Wednesday prayer core of people who will say, all right, this next 90 days, I choose in God's leading to be a part of the group that meets at midweek and does battle for the whole church. And then for those 12 Wednesday nights, you'll be there, barring hell or high water. You'll be there if you're not sick or if you're not, uh, don't have a crisis. Now, then everybody else is off the hook and no more guilt trips on Wednesday night. But you know what I'd love to see is about 80 or 90 people. If 80 or 90 people did it and we rolled over every quarter, you wouldn't have to come on Wednesday night, but one quarter out of every two and a half years. 
The second commitment is the morning prayer watch. I want people to pray just like there are about seven or eight right now behind that wall praying for you, this service. I'd love to see a dozen people there during every morning service. All it would take is for you to fill this out. And what I'm asking for here is if you say yes, you come to one service once a month for three months. Not very much. So, for example, come to the early service, go to Sunday school at 9, pray at 11 once a month. Or mix it up in some other way. So that would be the commitment there. You're talking 90 days, not a whole year. And then finally, I think everybody should fill this one out. Namely, isn't there some person or some cause that you want to mention to God every day? It's that important that you just want to say it to God 90 times in the next 90 days. Now, what do you do with them? The top part, you fill out, you tear it off, you, you fill out, they're the same, top and bottom. You keep the bottom one for yourself to remind yourself, I thought I might take these up in the service, but we talked it over, Remco and I, and we said, that might put people under pressure who really don't mean it. So here's what we're going to do. A box called... Prayer commitment forms is right out there, just follow my finger, on the table by the books. If you mean business, if you will make one of these three commitments, and I think everybody ought to make the last one, so I'd like to see 600 cards in there at the end of these three services or 800 or whatever. Would you walk there, even if you go out that door, go underneath, come back up, drop it in, go back out to your car? And then we'll dedicate this core. I'll print all the names of the Wednesday Prayer Corps in the Star in a couple of weeks, and we'll pray for each other. And we'll have a core of people that are doing battle with the devil at midweek for the next 12 Wednesdays. And then we'll disband that, take another commitment, and we'll do it again. And we'll see how the Lord leads in prayer in 1989. We're going to bow and just take one minute of silence for you to pray about this. And then we're going to close with number 617. Onward, Christian soldiers. Note that third verse when we sing it. It's just a majesty of victory. And I want us to sing it together after we've prayed in silence for one minute about our prayer commitment.